Well, good evening. After the lesson tonight, uh, we're going to have some of the youth who are in the Lads to Leaders program do some scripture readings. And so I want to encourage you to stick around for that. That'll, uh, hopefully they'll be arriving during the lesson and, uh, and they'll be able to get real practice reading scripture in front of uh, the church and uh, get some experience doing some public speaking that way. Uh, one of the things that I love that this church does is our involvement with Lads to Leaders. Uh, I've seen uh, over the years uh, in other places a lot of of young people get tremendous experience working and serving with the church, whether it's learning how to read scripture or put together devotional thoughts or learning how to lead singing or, or acts of service and kindness. There's all kinds of different areas that they participate in and they grow and they serve. And so it's a wonderful program and we're doing that here. And, uh, and it's something that uh, probably would be good to talk about more often than we do. But tonight uh, we're, we're going to get to see some of them uh, hopefully get here and, and read some scriptures. That was that was a little bit of what we were talking about just a second ago. But um, anyway, so our lesson tonight, we're going to be uh, expounding a little bit further upon what we were talking about this morning, specifically about the idea of having a plurality of elders and having uh, elders. One of the benefits of that is that you get perspectives from multiple different minds that if you only had one, you wouldn't be able to get. Um, nobody is the perfect elder. Uh, and I hope that's not offensive to any of our elders, but, uh, but nobody is the perfect elder. Uh, everybody needs help with that. When you look at qualifications and when you look at uh, some of the many passages that talk about leading and serving in the church, there's no one person who's every one of those things is their strength. Even people who are good, qualified elders, they're going to have some areas that they excel in and some areas that, they, that are more of a struggle for them. I think, I think when it comes to, uh, to anyone who's a servant in the church, you have some areas that are more, more gifts. You know, they are things that, that God does through you and they, they work really well. And then there are other areas where it's a lot more of a struggle. And that's even true among elders. And it would be, it would, that's something we should know. That's something that's somewhat obvious if you think about it. But sometimes, um, Sometimes people can view elders as though they have to be almost perfect men. You know, they have to not have any weaknesses or not have any areas where they struggle or not have any, any sins. And that's, that's not realistic. Uh, what real is realistic is having good and godly men who are above reproach, who work really hard, and who work as a team together to try to serve the church out of love. And, and I think we have that. And I think that's something we can continue to have. And I think that's what the, the church is called to have. And, and so one of the benefits of working as a team, though, is that where one person might not be as strong, another person might be. Where one person might not have their area of expertise, that might be the strength of another. And so you actually work together. You know, by and large, uh, for the whole church, Paul uses this illustration of the body. How some might be an eye, and some might be a foot, and some might be a hand. And, and they all have very different roles within the body, but they are all important parts of the body. I mean, no one would want to only be a bunch of hands. You know, you, you want some eyes, and you want a mouth, and you, you want a well-rounded, functioning body. And I think you could apply that same logic to the eldership as a whole. You're going to have some people who excel in some areas and uh, need some help in some other areas, and that's why you work together as a team. And when you do work together as a team, you can accomplish an awful lot of good because no one can do it all themselves. We're going to be in our lesson uh, in Exodus chapter 18. And so if you want to turn there, uh, that would be good. Exodus chapter 18 is where we're going to begin. Um, one thing that 
that is important to know, and we'll talk about this some next week when we get to some of the specific passages about qualifications, is that elders are not a new idea when Paul is, is writing about them. Uh, elders are not something that uh, started with Christianity. There were elders who existed in Judaism long before Christianity. They, they pop up quite a bit in the Old Testament and even in the Gospels. Uh, now in the Gospels, they're not usually presented very well. Uh, you know, it's, it's the chief priests and the elders and the scribes who uh, conspire together against Jesus on his final trip to Jerusalem where he's crucified. But you do see that phrase, and the elders. And you see this collection of elders who, in that passage, they seem to uh, uh, be uh, involved with the temple and uh, have a lot of influence and leadership there. Um, you see elders who, uh, as you read through, um, one of the controversies that Jesus got into was about washing hands. And the way that that controversy is introduced is that his disciples were breaking the tradition of the elders by not washing their hands, and that was something that the elders had had, uh, had spoken on. Uh, and that is something that I, not even just the current elders of that day, but I think had been passed along from the, the religious leaders and the elders of the Jewish people. Um, but even when you go to the Old Testament, you see these groups of elders. You see, uh, for example, cities would have their elders. And uh, regularly they would meet at the city gates. And while they were there, they would dispense justice uh, about uh, different quarrels that would come up within the city. Uh, and so if there was a, um, a, an issue between two people and they were seeking some restitution or a, a resolution to it, they could go to the city elders and they could both plead their case. And the city elders would try to dispense justice. They were, it was like a, a kind of like a law court. Uh, they would go there and they would get uh, good wisdom from the city elders. Um, sometimes, like in the book of Amos, that was abused. In the book of Amos, there is a repeated condemnation that there's no justice at the gate. You go to the gate of the city, and the people there care more about a bribe than they do about justice. And so when that happens, the rich people get all the justice in the world, or they, however they define that, and the poor people end up with nothing. And Amos is pretty upset about that. Um, but when, when the elders are doing their job properly— it ends up being a pretty good system. In the book of Ruth, uh, Boaz goes and he meets with the elders about marrying Ruth and, the, and about land transactions and all of that. Like that was that was a place where you went to to do some legal work in in ancient Israel. The elders were were a part of that. Um, and so, if you look at the elders, you also see, by the way, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this uh, as the lesson goes on. Uh, Moses, there are a number of references to 70 elders. Uh, when he goes up on the mount, uh, or comes down from the mountain, he reads a lot of the people. There's 70 elders who are there and who are present. And, you know, who are these men? Well, we're, we're going to perhaps talk about that uh, in the lesson here uh, in a little bit. But when you read through, there's quite a few references to elders. Uh, they seem to be people who were heads of households, the patriarchs of their family. Uh, they were people who had the respect of the people. They were people who, uh, whose families uh, were, were uh, honoring God. And they're people who you could trust that would, they were supposed to be people you could trust that would uh, care more about justice and truth than bribes or than uh, their own, um, you know, their own reputations and things like that. They, they cared about standing up for God. And, and so as the history of Israel progressed, and you start having these foreign nations come, and they would dominate the people, or they would disperse the people, or even though it was, uh, you know, an Israelite city, it was dominated by a foreign ruler, 
these elders became uh, important. They were no longer the ones who could dispense the, the laws and, and, you know, injustice in that regard because you had people like Pilate or Herod who were uh, going to be the people who make those types of rules. But what elders could do, and I think this became an important part of maintaining the identity of Israel, is even in a pagan culture or even under pagan rulership, you could have these elders who would be part of the community and who could help even in a foreign land or even under foreign domination unite the community to continue to be God's people to where they still had their own uh, fellowship with each other. They still had their own continuity. They could maintain their relationship with God as his covenant people even under a foreign ruler. Um, I think that might be some of what as the church began to spread throughout the ancient world and they were in a pagan culture and most of the people around them were pagans, how do you have a, a community that is united together? Well, one way you do that is with the help of elders who represent that community and who come together and try to teach and try to, to be there to, to help the church get together as a peaceable community of God, to create a city within a city. And you had the, the elders there of the church. The church is that representative city within the greater city. So you might be in, in Corinth or you might be in Ephesus and you have this great pagan city, but the church is called to be a, a city on a hill, a different kind of city, a city within that city. And the elders become those who help teach and instruct and guide in the ways of God in the world around them. And I think it's, a, it's an idea that goes back to what the city elders did in, in ancient Israel. And so it's not a completely new idea. It's an idea that long existed and that is put into practice in some new ways uh, to help the church as they are uh, trying to, to live as the people of God in the ancient world and, and in the modern world. And so when we look at elders, um, you see a lot of different tasks that are given to them and you see a type of man that you're looking for, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more next week. But in Exodus 18, I think you get here um, some of the initial ideas for having these types of men in ancient Israel. Uh, as I mentioned, in the, the life of Moses, you see references to 70 elders. Uh, in Exodus 24, for example, you're going to see a reference to 70 elders. We're not given a lot of detail about who those men were, but I, I would be shocked if they weren't some of the men who are mentioned here in Exodus 18. In Exodus 18, we end up coming up with a list of men who are going to be uh, helping make decisions and helping guide people in the laws of God and in righteousness uh, as people try to figure their way along. The context of Exodus 18 is this is prior to the law of Moses being given. They're actually at the mountain where God's going to give them the law, but that's not going to start till the next chapter. They have arrived at the mountain, and right now the people who are there are escaped slaves. They have been slaves in Egypt. Uh, they haven't had the law of God. They haven't had the Torah. Uh, they have not been uh, their own nation, per se. Uh, and they have, because of the mighty works of God, been freed from Egypt. And they've been able to cross through the Red Sea. They've entered into the wilderness. And they did so, and there was no good water to drink. They found themselves with bitter water that they couldn't drink. And so God miraculously made it drinkable. And then they found themselves with no food. And so God miraculously rained food out of the heavens for them. And then they found themselves 
uh, with, uh, with no water at all. And so God had water come from a rock for them. And then they found themselves uh, facing opponents and enemies, the Amalekites, that they couldn't defeat. And so God gave them the victory. And the way he did it was by having Moses hold up his staff. And as long as the staff was in the air, uh, they would win. But they weren't even strong enough to hold up a staff. You know, Moses needed help. They needed to, to get people there to hold his arm up. It's like every step of the way is a demonstration of the inability on their part. They can't get out of Egypt, but God does the plagues so they can get out. They can't cross the Red Sea, so God splits it for them. They can't make their own water, so God makes it drinkable. They can't even feed themselves, so God rains it out of heaven. God gives them water from a rock. God, they can't defeat their own enemies, and so God gives them a victory over the Amalekites. Well, when you get to chapter 18, they have arrived after all of this stuff at the mountain. And you know what? It seems like there are disputes among the people because they keep having to go to Moses to get answers for how they're going to to solve all of their disputes and all of these questions. And you can imagine if you are a bunch of escaped slaves and you're living in tents and you're trying to think, well, I want to sleep there and he took my tent. Or, you know, like these types of issues will arise and you're trying to figure out property rights and you're trying to figure out stuff while you're still just wandering in the wilderness. There's going to be a lot of questions that come up. And so they would go to Moses and they would try to get answers to those questions. And Moses was doing his best... But you know how I told you at the beginning of this lesson, there's no perfect elder? Even Moses couldn't do it alone. Even Moses was failing at this, and he needed help. Uh, What what Moses was doing, it, it explicitly says, was not good. He was trying to do good, but it was not good. And so Exodus 18 is a solution to some of the problems Moses has been having. And that solution's going to come by saying, hey, let's... uh, Let's distribute responsibilities a little bit. Let's, let's make sure that we have, let's delegate responsibilities a little bit so that you get some help and it doesn't all fall on one person. Anytime the work of the church or the work of, of leading each Israel falls on one person, you're setting yourself up for failure. That's one of the reasons why we want more elders, a plurality of elders, so that it doesn't become an unbearable job for any one person. So that you can, you can share in the, the responsibilities with others and you can do so to the glory of God. And you see that idea all the way back before the law is even given. Moses has taken on too much responsibility. You'd think if anyone can handle it, it's Moses. But, but no, Moses can't handle it. And so he's given some advice that he puts into practice. And I think that might be where some of those 70 elders have come from uh, that end up being leaders in ancient Israel. So let's, uh, let's start reading through Exodus 18 and hopefully learn a few things as we go. Um, chapter 18 and verse 13 is where the, the story for our purposes is really going to start. Uh, but we'll kind of quickly go through the first 12 verses just to show what has happened. Uh, Moses is going to meet up with Jethro. Jethro, um, we ran into him earlier by a different name uh, in the book of Exodus, and he is Moses' father-in-law. So you remember Moses married his wife Zipporah uh, after Moses killed that Egyptian, and he fled to Midian, and he lived there for 40 years. He ends up getting married. He has a kid. Uh, he has a kids. Uh, he has a father-in-law, and he works there as a shepherd for 40 years. Right. So while he's there, he builds a relationship with uh, a certain man. We're going to know as Jethro. Jethro, he was from Midian, and he was a priest of Midian. So he was like a religious leader of the people of Midian. 
And that's who Moses had associated with. Well, Moses ends up becoming a follower of Yahweh there at the the burning bush. And he ends up leaving and going back to Egypt and going through the ten plagues and and fighting, you know, against Pharaoh and having all that stuff happen and leading the people out. And then they've gone through everything we just talked about in the wilderness. Well, one of the reasons, and this is fascinating, one of the reasons God wanted the ten plagues to happen It wasn't just to free the people from Israel, but it was also to establish a reputation for the God of Israel for all the nations and for generation after generation. See, God wanted to do the plagues, and and you get that impression. God, God wants these plagues to happen because they are going to demonstrate to all the people surrounding Israel their God's actually really, really powerful. And uh, we should take him seriously, and we shouldn't uh, mess with his people, and we should care about the way that they live. Maybe we can learn something from them as followers of this God. But also, he wants it to be something that they can tell generation after generation, so that they can tell their children, let me tell you how powerful our God is, and you tell them the story of the ten plagues. By the way, we still do that in our Bible classes thousands of years later. And so, and so what God's plan was has worked pretty well. Um, what you get in Exodus 18 is an example of it working really well. It works with Jethro. Jethro is a priest of Midian, and he seems to have heard of Yahweh and knows who Yahweh is, but because of the events of the Exodus, he comes to have some pretty powerful beliefs about Yahweh. And so look at Exodus chapter 18 and verse 1. It says, now Jethro, the priest of Midian, and so it introduces him with that. Remember who we're talking about here. This is a priest of Midian, um, Moses' father-in-law, so that's going to connect you back to the earlier chapters of Exodus. He heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord brought Israel out of the land of Egypt. So he's in Midian, and he hears about this. He knows Moses took off, but he hasn't checked his Facebook in a while. And so like, there's no way to know what's going on over there until word spreads. And it has. And that's exactly what God said we wanted to happen. The ten plagues and the, the overthrow of Egypt was a way of demonstrating. Uh, you see the same thing, by the way, when they're about to ch- take Jericho. Uh, and the spies go into Jericho to search it out. And Rahab is there. She's already heard what happened in Egypt. Uh, she knows about that story. And by the way, that's about 40 years later. And so uh, you, you can see that what God did seems to have made an impact in the community around them and in the area around them. Well, Jethro has heard about this. And so he ends up traveling. Uh, and Moses is able to reunite with his wife and his kids. And, and they travel to the, the wilderness where Moses is. And uh, when you look at verse 5, It says, Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he camped at the Mount of God. So they're there at the base of the mountain, and this is like the first story we have there at the mountain. Uh, In verse 6, it says, He sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and your two sons with her. Then Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, and he bowed down, and he kissed him, and he asked each, uh, and they asked each other about their welfare, and they go into the tent. So Moses goes into this tent, and this tent uh, is where people go to meet with him and where he goes to meet with God to, to give answers to the people's questions. Uh, but there he seems to go into it uh, to meet with Jethro and uh, to talk to each other. What you're going to see is the things that Jethro has heard 
as rumors swirling around Midian, he's going to get firsthand witness from Moses about what has actually happened. So in verse 8, Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that had befallen them on the journey, and how the Lord had delivered them. So, the things that we talked about earlier, the, the overthrow of Egypt with the plagues, and then all those hardships on the journey, whether it's with the Amalekites, or whether it's with the water, whether it's with the uh, food, and, and whether it's with the Red Sea, and, and all of those things uh, that have come upon them, they have faced hardship after hardship, and God has established himself as the powerful one who can overthrow Egypt, but also as the provider who will be there for Israel even through their hardships. Now, Moses explains all of this to a priest from Midian, to Jethro. And Jethro's response is is fantastic. Uh, Verses 9 through 12, you see just one thing after another uh, of his response that shows the impact that this story has had on him. The first thing he does in verse 9 is he rejoiced. Jethro rejoiced over all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel in delivering them from the hand of the Egyptians. So he's thrilled. He rejoices uh, in the downfall of Egypt, but also uh, that Moses has had success. Verse 10, Then Jethro, uh, so Jethro said, and here he's going to offer a blessing to the Lord. Blessed be the Lord who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh, and who has delivered his people from under the hand of the Egyptians. So he rejoices. He offers a blessing. Then verse 11, he confesses something that's really incredible here. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Indeed, it was proven when they dealt proudly against the people. Uh, And so all of the gods that he was aware of, even the gods perhaps that he had uh, offered sacrifice to, He now knows that the God that Moses left to go serve is more powerful than them all. He's the greatest God out of all of the gods. He is the most powerful. And so he comes to make this powerful declaration about who God is. And then verse 12, he begins to worship. It says, Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. So here the priest of Midian has rejoiced, has blessed God, has confessed that God is the greatest God, and now he offers worship and and sacrifice and and praises to God uh, and burnt offerings. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses, uh, with Moses' father-in-law before God. And so there you do get a, a reference to the idea of them coming together to share a meal, and there are elders there. Um, so Who are these elders? Uh, I I imagine these will be some of the people who will be used in the next part of the the chapter. Uh, But they are probably the the heads of households, the older men, uh, men who have uh, been respected among these people and uh, who are uh, trying to lead people towards Moses and towards God and righteousness. Um, What you're going to have happen next is... A problem arises that Jethro notices. And so that's kind of where we're going to get, I think, the the point that correlates well with the lesson this morning. In verse 13, it says, It came about the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood about Moses from morning until evening. Then Moses' father-in-law saw, uh, or now when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this thing that you are doing for the people? 
why do you alone sit as, and judge all the people and they stand about you from morning until evening? So, I mean, Moses is kind of the, the hot, like, he's the hot shot of ancient Israel. He's the guy who, who God has done all of these things through. So when people have problems, they're going to want to talk to Moses about it. But Moses is only one man, and there's a lot of Israelites. And so what they do is they go to Moses to get answers, and yet they have to wait all day and night. I mean, from morning until evening, they are waiting to get an opportunity to speak with Moses. And he deals with one problem after another problem after another problem after another problem. And Moses has some God-given wisdom. Moses is someone who God is using and speaking through. But no matter how much God-given wisdom you have, that's a huge job for one person. And it's such a big job that it's not being run very well. Because, I mean, if you have someone that that you have a dispute with, and then you have to go stand in line with that person from like 6 a.m. To, to 7 p.m., and at the end of that, you still get sent home because the crowd was too big, you are going to hate that person uh, by the end of that. And imagine you, after waiting all day, finally do get to see Moses, and he sides with the other person. I mean, it's one thing to have a judgment go away against you. It's another thing when you have had to travel and wait all day in the burning sun and you're frustrated and you have other things you'd rather be doing and then you finally get to go receive your justice and the other person gets it. Like, that's just a, a, a scenario that's destined for, t- f- uh, you know, tempers to flare. Like, this is the type of thing that's going to uh, make peace among the people just about impossible. It's going to completely wear Moses out, and it's going to cause uh, the people to be warned. They're not going to like this system either. It's like they're going to end up hating Moses. They're going to end up hating each other. Moses is going to be completely worn out from trying to do this all day. And Jethro's thinking, hasn't anyone rethought this system at all? Like, this isn't working, and this this has no staying power. This isn't going to be something you can rely on for long. And so uh, Jethro... After receiving Moses's, uh, Moses' answers in verse 15, he says, Moses said to his father-in-law, uh, Because the people come to me to inquire of God, and when they have a dispute, it comes to me, and I judge between a man and his neighbor, and I make known the statutes of God and, and his laws. So he says, basically, they're coming to me, and I'm the one who's able to hear from God, and so I, I give them my answers from God, and, and that, that solves the disputes. And, and it seems like Moses is really trying to do a good thing, And Jethro responds in verse 17, the thing that you are doing is not good. Uh, You might have great intentions, but it's way too big of a burden on you. It's going to wear you out. Um, You need help. You need some teammates here. You need some delegation here. You need some other people who you can trust, who you can actually rely upon to help you with these things so that it doesn't all fall on you. Um, You don't have to... You shouldn't have to have an answer to every question people have. You should have some other people who can help alleviate some of that difficulty. Um, As we talk about elders, that's one of the benefits of having multiple elders, so that it doesn't all fall on one person. So if one person begins to feel overwhelmed or stressed, maybe they can delegate and use their team and say, hey, I need someone else to help me with this. Uh, Or, you know, if one elder is gone, well, that doesn't it's not, I mean, if Moses takes a vacation right here, everything falls apart. Uh, if you have the system in place that Jethro is going to talk about, then it's fine. 
and you can just wait till he comes back. You know, like there are there are things in place to make sure that it's not uh, uh, too difficult of, of a responsibility. And one of the things that is genuinely fascinating about this passage. It's not only the problem of, uh, of too much weight being on one person and trying to figure out a way to delegate it. One of the other benefits of having a team is that not everyone has the same experiences and perspectives and views. And one, one of the benefits of that is we all, every one of us, have some blind spots. When it comes to our study of the Bible, no one's perfect at that. Uh, the, the Bible's a big book, and we could all do better. Uh, that's something. Everyone, you might have some, your things that you do really well, but you also probably have your areas that you're not as, as, as good with. Uh, when it comes to dealing with people, you probably have some people who you connect with and deal with really well, and you probably have your blind spots. One of the, one of the benefits of a plurality of, of individuals is that while we all have blind spots— we don't all have the same blind spots. And my blind spot might be something that you see clearly. And your blind spot might be something that I have a pretty good view of. And, and you can help each other in that way. Well, right here, Moses doesn't seem to have even thought about reconfiguring this system. That's a blind spot. And Jethro, where he got this knowledge from, maybe it's just the way things were done in Midian. And he says, well, I'll tell you, this isn't going to work well. You need some governance here. You, know, you need some help. And so all of a sudden, Moses' blind spot, Jethro immediately sees it. And he says, hey, I can help you with that. And here he gets advice from someone who has a completely different backstory than him. He's a religious priest from Midian. And yet he's someone who is able to offer something to Moses that Moses says, oh, that's a great idea. I hadn't even considered that before. And all of a sudden, he, because someone had a different experience and a different life and a different way of seeing things, he was immediately able to see and solve a problem that Moses, I don't know if he had even recognized it was a problem yet. Moses explains it to him like it's just the way things got to be. And Jethro's saying it's not the way things have to be. And so Jethro says, this is not good. Let me give you some, some suggestions here. Uh, verse 18 he mentions some of the issues. He says, You will surely wear out both yourself and these people who are with you, for the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. That's the same thing is true about the eldership, by the way. Uh, those same words could apply. It's too big of a task for any one person. You can't do it alone. So get some help. So listen, verse 19, to me. I'll give you counsel, and God be with you. You and the people's, uh, you be the people's representative before God, and you bring the disputes to God. Then teach them the statutes and the laws and make known to them uh, the way in which they are to walk and the work they were, are to do. So do that. That's a great task for you to keep doing. Furthermore, verse 21, you shall select out of all the people men who fear God, men of truth and or integrity, and those who hate dishonest gain. People who are not going to take bribes, people who care about justice and truth, and people who fear God. Look among the community there and look for those types of people. By the way, I mean, when you read the qualifications of elders, it's a little bit lengthier than that. But if you do that right there, you're going to pretty much find the same types of people you find in that other list. I mean, those are the, those are the types. They fear God. They live for him. They care about truth, and they try to obey what God wants in their lives. And they're not greedy. They're not, uh, you know, out for dishonest gain. That's, that's the type of guy you're looking for. And so that's the type of guy that he describes. And he says, place them as leaders 
over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. So that, you know, when, when people have disputes, it kind of gets funneled through some channels of different elders or different leaders or judges who are able to help uh, give some answers so that very few things make their way through all of that to get to Moses. Verse 22, he says, let them judge the people at all times and let it be that every major dispute that they bring, uh, bring to you, but every minor dispute... They themselves will judge, so it will be easier for you, and uh, they will bear that burden with you. He specifically says, hey, it'll be easier on you. Like, that's a good thing. Sometimes, sometimes I don't know if we have a fear of things being easy on us. I don't want it to make us look lazy. Or, but, no, it's actually a good thing. If leadership becomes easier for you, that's a good thing. You don't want it to be an overwhelming burden and a weight that you can't carry. Try to make it easier. That's, that's all right. God is okay with that. And, and that's specific wisdom that's given to Moses here. Make it easier. And so he's told to do that. Verse 23, he says, If you do this thing and God commands you, uh, then you will be able to endure, and all these people also will go to their place in peace. It's like if you do it, the people will have peaceful answers. There will be, it won't be a hectic, crazy experience trying to go see Moses and waiting all day long and getting even more frustrated there. They'll be able to get simple resolutions. There's going to be more peace among the people, and you won't wear out. So Moses, that's what I suggest to you. And uh, so then Moses, verse 24, he listened to his father-in-law, and he did all that he said. And Moses chose able men out of all of Israel and made them heads over the peoples, leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. You know, one, one of the reasons why you get those types of men is if this is going to work at all, an essential part of it is Moses has to genuinely trust that they're going to be able to do it and that they're going to do it right. Um, one of the reasons you want to have the qualifications, one of the reasons that you're looking for a particular type of individual is because if you don't trust each other, if elders don't trust deacons, then all of a sudden they can't give up responsibility to deacons. If elders can't trust each other, then they want to hold on to that responsibility themselves, and it ends up wearing them out. If, if elders can't trust a preacher, then, then it becomes overbearing on everyone. And the people who are being managed end up frustrated at the people overmanaging them, and the people overmanaging them end up burnt out and worn out because they can't give up control. Trust is an essential part of this. And so as we proceed and as we progress, trust is going to be a major part. You have to trust the people who are uh, leading, and you have to trust who you uh, are willing to put forward. And if they are the type of people that God says to have in leadership, and they're in leadership, then be okay with that. You don't have to put everything under a microscope anymore. You can trust and say, okay, they'll do their job. Moses has to do that. If Moses then became a micromanager of every one of these judges, he just shifted his problem to a new problem. He didn't actually solve it. Trust is what's going to solve this problem. And so trust is an essential ingredient moving forward. Um, and, uh, and so if this is going to work, uh, trust has to be at, at the foundation of it. And then we get to verses 26 and 27, and we'll, we'll conclude here. They judged the people at all times. 
the difficult dispute uh, would bring to Moses, but every minor dispute they themselves would judge. Then Moses bade his father-in-law farewell, and he went uh, his way to his own land. So then Jethro just departs from our lives forever. You know, he's, he's not in this story again. He, this one bit of advice, though, ends up giving Moses the, the strength and the wisdom that he would need throughout the rest of the story. It's because he was willing to listen even to an outside source. He was able to listen to someone who came from a different background. Being able to listen and to receive advice, to have someone who can see your blind spots and you can see theirs, someone who can, can suggest things that you listen to that are good ideas, and then having people who can take responsibility so that it doesn't all fall on one person, that's what having a team is all about, and that's what the eldership is called to be. There's a lot of wisdom in not having just one elder, uh, but in having a group who can work together. And again, I love this eldership, and I'm excited to see uh, what the future holds for this eldership. You're an important part of that. Pray about it every day. Pray about it constantly and regularly, uh, and try to put the well-being of this church above any other decision that you're making with respect to the eldership. Um, If there's anyone here tonight who would like the prayers of this church, we pray that you would let that be known. If anyone would like to become a Christian tonight, please come forward while we stand and as we sing.